Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Vivian Pham. Vivian is a fiction writer, a closet poet, amateur screenwriter, and university student. Vivian's debut novel is The Coconut Children, and she's joining us to discuss it today on Great Conversations. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to this land. Here on Final Draft, we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture as featured on 2SER. I am also maintaining social distancing, which means that uh, sometimes I'm recording in less than ideal circumstances, so please forgive the audio. I am committing to bringing you the best possible show that I can, though, so if you're loving it and you are uh, in social isolation, finding yourself with more time to do some reading, why not uh, share the show with people, give us a rating and help others both, uh, you know, experience the adventure of the podcast and get a little bit more out of the books that they're reading. Now, in The Coconut Children, Vince has returned to the streets of his youth. He's not yet old, but legendary after a two-year stint in juvenile detention. It's Cabramatta in the late 1990s, and as a suburb and the schools struggle to contain Vince's virality, Sonny can only watch on from afar. Sonny and Vince were childhood friends, but now Sonny's grappling with her own growing maturity and cannot fathom that she, the almost mythological figure of Vince, might ever notice her as she watches from the window next door. Join me as we discover Vivian Pham's The Coconut Children. I am absolutely ecstatic to be sharing a fantastic new Australian novel today. Uh, from a distance, I am joined by Vivian Pham, uh, and Vivian's bio describes her as a fiction writer, closet poet, amateur screenwriter, university student, and hopeful dropout if any of the aforementioned ventures take flight. Uh, that certainly seems to be the case to me because Vivian's debut novel, The Coconut Children, is absolutely fantastic. And Vivian, I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining me on Final Draft. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, taking us to Cabramatta in the late 90s, The Coconut Children sees Vince. He's returned to the streets of his youth. He's only 16. He's not yet old, but legendary after a two-year stint in juvenile detention. As the suburb and the schools struggle to contain... Vince's vitality, Sonny can only watch on from afar. Sonny and Vince were childhood friends, but now Sonny is grappling with her own growing maturity and cannot fathom that the almost mythological figure of Vince might notice her as she watches from the window next door. So Vivian, there is, there is so much to love and to discuss in The Coconut Children. I, I, struggled, <laughs> I struggled to even begin, but when we meet Vince, mm -hmm. there is... There is something of a sort of a demigod being welcomed back to streets where he's notorious and legendary. And it strikes me that these tricks of memory occupy so much of and so many of the characters in The Coconut mm -hmm. Children. So Sonny and Vince, they, they must each confront memory, their own and their parents, to make sense yes. of their lives. What, what role do you see for the vicissitudes of memory in The Coconut Children? Um, I mean, even the... Even the um, choice of setting it in the past and during a time that, that I wasn't um, born, like in 1998, and I was born two years later, even that choice, um, it was necessary because of um, the things that were happening in Cabramatta at that time. And when I was born um, in, in the 2000s, Cabramatta had, had really changed by that time, and there was a lot more um, intervention from the government and the police to 
to, to change the, the conditions of the streets. But in the 90s, um, setting in a, it in that time was for me like fictionalizing my relationship with it felt like um, having to me it reflected how I have to imagine the connections that I have with my culture and with my my family as well. I mean, like growing up um, and hearing the stories that my my parents would tell me about everything they had gone through to to come to Australia and made them seem mythical, like you said, in a way, and it made them seem like um, they were characters in a story that I had no part in. So yeah, I just Sonny and Vince are both, um, like you said, they have to deal with the way the the past. Um, the role that the past has in in their own lives. I want to think a little bit more then about Sonny and Vince's relationship, but also the relationship you just mentioned, because memory, it, it connects Sonny and Vince to the struggles of their parents in migrating to Australia as refugees. And there's mm. a scene where Vince and his friends are singing karaoke and Vince has just listened to uh, one of his mates. I think mm. I'm pretty sure it was Tim Tam. It was Tim Tam. It was Tim Tam. And Vince wonders... How could somebody grieve with an honesty that seemed to bleed, a love that was never his, a love that he'd never known, a memory he could never remember? And it it felt to me like you were asking what obligation the present owes to the past. And that that seems like a really important question for us all. It, it is. And I feel like one of the reasons it's so um, it was and is still so painful is because it just feels so intangible and records of the past that we have that kind of preserve our relationship to the people that we know and their experiences and everything they've gone through. It just feels so like it will vanish if you don't remember it. And I feel like a lot of the children, mm. certain, like I do as well, we feel a responsibility to remember just so that we can lift any burden that we can from our parents. Yeah, there's another scene where Sunny has gone to the library after school and I think she mm. prefaces it with this idea that she, she needs another type of learning and she's going through old newspaper articles and mm. looking at, at absolutely horrific stories of Vietnamese refugees trying to come to Australia in the late 70s, the early 80s. Mm. And there's a word that you actually use, and if, I've, if I'm remembering this correctly because I didn't make a note of it, silly me, uh, but she, <laughs> she, she talks about the, the newsprint being decaying, which is, it seems like a far more appropriate word for the, the visceral story that she's reading rather than the paper in her hands. But that's obviously mm. a, a product of her remembering. Exactly. Yeah. I think the phrase was like, um, so black and white, so grain de decaying, because mm. it just feels like it's so stark. And yet it feels like it's already, it's just made its way into her memory and it's already fading. It already mm. feels so, so difficult to grasp. And, but I also want to say that that scene for me was really hard to write and quite um, autobiographical because during the HSC, um, when I was writing a lot and trying to figure out, um, trying to just remember all these like traumatic histories of Vietnamese refugees from that time, I was also, I mean, th those are just like two, two or three pages. And then immediately after that scene of her in the library, the next day she's, watching Vince and like salivating over him as he plays basketball. So it's just like these things, they mean, these memories can really impact us and mean a lot to us in a specific moment. And then we can completely forget about them. And it's just, it feels so fickle at times mm -hmm. and your relationship with 
these histories feel so, um, yeah, just hard to rely on and undependable. Yeah, you've really helped me connect there with, with something else that I noticed in your writing. And mm-hmm. I, I guess what you described there, the, the shift of a couple of pages, is a stylistic choice that you make to, to illustrate something about mm-hmm. Sonny's perception and memory. But I also noticed within a scene, you would shift perspectives between characters, sometimes quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And it, it had um, it had this wonderful... I guess sense of momentary confusion, but then also building of of almost a group character. Mm-hmm. I found that particularly wonderful with Vince and and his friends, and I really want to get to them in a second. But what were you <laughs> thinking of? What were you thinking of stylistically there as you as you did those sort of perspective jumps? Hmm. Stylistically, I I just really didn't want to um I didn't want to write a story where we only get to hear the thoughts and the the inner thoughts of one character, even if it. Um, I mean, throughout writing it and editing it, it was an ongoing conversation because my editor had concerns of like it being confusing and mm. and um, yeah, the the many voices that would be present in one scene um, would confuse the reader. And I understood that, but at the same time, I I think it is con- even like scenes with um, Vince and his friends, for example, it would be clearer and, and easier to understand if we only saw it from Vince's perspective. But mm. I feel like what, even even at that age and as as self-centered and um, as you are, you, you are aware that the people around you have thoughts of their own and the way that they see you so has such a significant like influence on the way you see yourself. And I feel like in every conversation as a teenager, you're trying to figure out like who sees you and who really understands what you're saying. And I feel like that can be really confusing. And for that to be reflected in the in the choice of a lot of characters' um, thoughts being voiced in a single scene was something I, I wanted to do. Look, I, I have to say, for, from my reading, the effect, mm-hmm. it absolutely hits. And I'm struggling with imperfect analogies here, but it, it strikes me that, I mean, you can you can pull apart a piece of music and find individual instruments, but... Mm-hmm collectively it makes the piece whole and and perhaps an, another another thought that i had was uh, particularly at that age but for any group there mm. is a sense of individuals but to understand the group you you need that plurality of voices and i i had a much stronger sense of vince for for having those multiple perspectives of himself and his friends mm-hmm. thank you oh that's really nice to know <laughs> I, I was doubting myself for a second <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. Mm. Before we before we leave uh, memory alone, though, I, I wanted to mm-hmm. also think about the way memory works in character as well as in place. You've you've already mentioned mm. that you've you've set the book at a time in Sydney and Cabramatta's history before you were born, a time that's very different to if someone would have well, nobody should be driving to Cabramatta or anywhere right now because we're all practicing social isolation. But, <laughs> um, mm. If you if you were to go to Cabramatta now, it would look very different to the the scene twenty two years ago. It but, would. Yeah, it, it's felt to me like Sonny and Vince, as they travel through Cabramatta, they're seemingly trying to come to terms with the world that they feel they occupy a very contemporary. Uh, I guess, Australian world and a world far away that's evoked by the adults around them, the stores mm. that they see. Mm-mm. How did you How did you imagine these perspectives and also this space some 20 years later? How did you actually physically create that for yourself? Mm. So I feel like, I mean, growing up, I, I don't live, I've never lived in Capra. I lived in mm. like surrounding suburbs mm. and my family, like a lot of Vietnamese families would 
go to Cabra every weekend to do our grocery shopping. Mm. And even growing up, um, I always felt like this sense of uh, nostalgia because I, it was so different to me from, from the things that I'd seen on TV and the movies I'd watched and the books I'd read. I'd never seen a place like this depicted before. And I feel like now it's changing. There are lots of, of, of people um, wanting to hold a mirror up to their own communities and, and, and have a place for, for their communities in literature and, and in arts. But yeah, growing up, I just felt like I felt already nostalgic for a place that was, that was still there. And, for, and, I, felt, and I didn't have a, a strong connection to Vietnam. I'd only um, traveled back and forth a few times as a kid. So Cabra to me was was like my my portal to Vietnam, and um, and it wasn't just um, my relationship to my parents' country. It was also I I'd heard stories growing up about what Cabra used to be like, and mm. and and I'd had um, relatives that were growing up um, around that area during that time that it was that a lot of kids were getting in trouble. Um, and so I'd always heard about, like, even up, even up until, like, very recently, none of us, when we'd go to Cabra, we'd, and if we'd need to, like, go to the toilet, we'd have to um, wait till we go home because my parents were still afraid of, uh, like, needles in the bathroom and stuff. So I always grew up with this, this image of Cabra, and by the time I was growing up, it was already safe for families to go freely, but... Um, that idea of what it used to be like. And that's kind of also that it, it mirrors the way that my parents remember Vietnam and the way that it used to be like, and the Vietnam that they grew up in is really different to the one that I'd, I'd seen and visited. So yeah, it's just this idea of, um, of trying to remember something that, that you, that your parents had lived or that people before you had had contact with and that you don't really have any connection to but through their memories it's really interesting what you mentioned there especially about this this sense of nostalgia for something mm. that is is ostensibly still there and it mm. it kind of recalls me to um other other sydney and western sydney authors uh like michael muhammad ahmed and peter polides and in his book down the hume he has a reference to this um this Facebook page that I actually looked up and, and found did exist and it's called Torp Houses of the Inner West where he mm -hmm. kind of explores the, the, the gentrification and changing of the old, um, the, the old sort of houses that were owned by Greek families that used to be painted in, mm. in absolutely fantastic colours and have now all become sort of gentrified torp mm. Uh, yeah. lacking in personality, all the rosemary bushes and lemon trees have been ripped out of the front yard type of mm. effect. Mm. It's, it seems like a, a sort of a sense of, of something that's happening in communities across the city. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's <laughs> um, <such> a shame. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And it, it, it makes me wonder how we will continue this process of memory and imagining into our futures. What will it look like 20 years from now and 20 years hence? And, exactly. Um, yeah. Which is, I, I, there's a comfort in that, actually. I feel like in the last three or four weeks, imagining something 20 years from now is, um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine something 20 days from now. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just such a weird, yeah, such a weird feel. I haven't been out in like three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I don't remember what everything looks like anymore. Yeah. A tree? What's what's torp? What? what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Now, I was enthralled by your, your evocation of sort of these contradictory performances of masculinity in the Coconut Children. Now, we've mm. got Vince and his group of friends. We've got Alex, Danny, Tim Tam. They're ostensibly a gang. Like, you show them basically kind of, in some ways, good-natured terror that they perform, mm. like egging, egging the girls' school. Mm. Um, which, I mean, I think we can examine that from different perspectives, but they want to pre present a veneer of toughness, but then it's also too often betrayed by a real sweetness and caring. The, the scene that I mentioned of Tim Tam singing, Danny trying to win teddies on a, on a claw machine for mm. his, his many girlfriends. Mm. Um, we also see this in the contra contrasting figures of Vince's father and, and Sonny's dad. Now, performing masculinity is not particularly a way that we would have talked about or viewed these characters in the late 90s. But what were you trying to understand in these various ways of, of being? What was I trying to understand? Um, well, Vince is based on one of my relatives and someone I know and, and love very much. Um, and I, I guess I wasn't thinking about, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about the big questions of... Of what it means to what it means to want to be a man and mm. how how boys learn how to become men from each other and from their fathers i was thinking just about um his life my relative's life in, in particular and the way that he carries himself and and the way that so a lot of other boys would would try to um the dynamics that they they created for themselves and the ways that the the ways that they interacted with each other and the closeness but also the the closeness that they had with each other but also the distance of of not wanting to to be someone that the other wouldn't respect and wouldn't um wouldn't yeah i don't know it's a tough question because i i didn't really think about it that much i really just wanted to to have a group of friends <laughs> they're an extraordinary they're an extraordinary group of friends. So, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by, to, to, to put this in context for the readers, mm. Vince, uh, for the listeners, Vince has, you know, just left two years in juvenile detention mm. and his friends immediately enclose around him. They give him a home, they take him shopping, they buy him clothes mm. um, and, and create this sort of nurturing environment. And at the same time, they take him out, they take him clubbing. There are moments where early in the book where they, they want him to come out and be drinking with them. Mm. And, and he's kind of saying, no, um, it's not something that he wants because he, he hasn't drank for two years and he's got a hangover from the night before. And they're, they're mm. doing that sort of good natured, but kind of often quite harmful ribbing that men do to men about Your memory drinking. is immaculate. Like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get all these details. But yeah, it's just a constant um, like resistance and also surrender and resistance of, of of who he is and what he wants mm. to do and also who his friends think he is and how he's performed him, his himself to them. Yeah, I think my memory is so so alive to this because in a way you're describing I think something that that most men will have experienced. Like I've mm. I've been in positions where I feel like I've wanted to say no, I don't want to I don't want to drink. Mm. I don't want another drink. And I've probably also been in the opposite position of the friends going, "Come on, mm. you've got to have a drink. You're not part of the group if you don't." Mm. Um, mm. And then just the but the the sweetness, the caring, the sensitivity, that that was what really got me because it um it is this amazing situation where it is something I think that most men feel, but not mm. many have that supportive environment that you have created with Vince and his friends. Mm. 
oh my gosh <laughs> thank you for telling me that that makes me feel so much better it's um it's really it's really interesting though then to to look at Vince's father, whom he has a, a very strange relationship with, his father has mm. problems with alcohol and that's led to problems in the home. His dad's abusive. And then Sonny's dad, who at one stage when Vince goes round, is is very kind of very kind of fatherly and matey mm. with Vince. But Vince has a lot mm. of trouble settling into that environment that feels so nurturing. Um, mm. And again, just these two different styles of, of masculinity mm. Create uh, it's it's really interesting to think about it as I as I read about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he his his relationship with 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 Sonny's dad is interesting because it feels I felt like yeah he he isn't used to um, being around older men that that have like a stable or pro- proper job. He isn't used to being around in Vietnamese culture. You'd call him you'd call Sonny's dad a, an educated and like. A civilized man and the the men that he's been around growing up don't mirror that at all especially his his own dad and i feel like he has a lot of respect for for sonny's dad but he also feels like he'll never be able to settle in in that kind of life where he's he's a man and he's a hard-working man and he comes home every day to to a family that where he's like belittled all the time and he understands that later on when he sees the the problems in Sonny's family when he moves in so yeah it's just yeah do you see do you see those two types of I guess uh living being a man as as having anything to do with the way both fathers have dealt with their their lives the trauma their their having to escape and and become a refugee to come to Australia I feel like um, so. What we know of <clears throat> what we know of um, um, Sonny's father's escape and Vince's father's escape are quite similar in the way that a lot of tragedy happened on on board. Right? But actually, no. Sonny's Sonny's father's escape. He really romanticizes it, and mm. the the role that it has in his life is it kind of proves to him that even though. Uh, at present, he's almost like a, a hostage husband. He's at home with a lo- with a wife that loves him, but the way that she shows it is so like so tinted with anger and and resentment. Um, but he kind of has this idea of himself as still that young boy that that lived that that lived um, in a refugee camp and was self sufficient, and he has quite quite a dreamy view of that past self. Whereas um, Vince's father kind of just blames himself for the past and he doesn't want to remember it, but it has such a, um, a monstrous presence in his life because it, it completely corrupts the way that he sees his son and the way that he sees his wife. And the only kind of thing that, that, that makes him feel, that consoles him is the birth of Emma someone that he a child that he sees as completely separate from the past and has no has no connection with it whatsoever um so yeah i feel like one one character is very is running is wanting to run away and um forget everything and another is remembering but remembering isn't always you know a good thing it's not always like a noble duty that people take on themselves it's it's a way that we believe delusions about ourselves as well yeah. Mm. 
I am, um, Vivian, I feel like I'm actually giving short shrift to Sunny here. And she is. She is <laughs> I'm glad, a, though. I've been talking about her for like ages, and no one's talked about Vince and his <laughs> his friends and his motivation. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm going to make you talk about Sunny even for a minute here. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she is such a diverse character. And in her mm-hmm. voice, we can shift from the tragic to quite comic moments. Mm. I was particularly interested in the way that you, um, through her and through her conversations, address sexuality and desire. Mm. Um, Sunny and her friend, I hope I pronounce this right, Naima? Uh, Najma. Najma. Mm -hmm. Sunny and her friend Najma, their frank discussions of sexuality and desire, they feel like something that I I don't often read and whether, whether it's in depictions or in film, in narratives on film or in books, mm. sex can sometimes seem like a bit of an intermission to a story, like something that, mm. that has to pop in. And I mm. wonder, do you, do you feel like we actually allow enough space for female desire in, in narrative? Mm. Is that something you wanted to address? It is something I wanted to address. Um, a lot of the, I feel a lot of coming of age, um, I think it's become freer the way that we we do see female devi- desire, especially teenage teenage girls. Um, at the moment, film film portrayals that are coming to mind and TV portrayals are like Dairy Girls and. Um, that is a name. terrific show. <laughs> it's a really good show. I really like the way that they. <laughs> um, what's her name? You know the one I'm talking about. That her desire is really palpable all the time in every scene. Oh. Um... Not Ola. Um, yeah, the other one. Yeah, uh, and the interview descends as we try to <laughs> try to think of a name. It'll come to us. We'll Google it and put it up on the website, dear we'll listener. We'll Google it. We'll Google it. But I think her her portrayal of it is great. I mean, um, uh, my Mad Fat Diary. I really liked a, a lot of uh, UK shows are are coming up and I think dealing with the issue really well. But I wanted to specifically um, look at it from the perspective of of girls that would probably never have any chance of enacting that desire mm. like Najma Shortly um Sunny that was her her relationship with Vince um nothing ha- nothing physical really happens transpires between them but she has at least like the possibility of entertaining the thought whereas Najma has no one mm. and her 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 desires are chiefly like occupied by celebrities as Sunny's were before she, before Vince returns. So, and I think it, it just becomes much more, much more difficult an issue to deal with um, when religion is involved and when, and especially when religion is so tied in with your connection to your culture. Um, mm. It's hard for, um, for some girls to understand their, their connection ties that they have with their culture without it being mediated by by god so and that just really affects the way that they think about themselves and their changing bodies and their their thoughts i think so that was something i really wanted to 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 deal with it was it was quite interesting also just to see them discuss uh a kind of a a pre-old, getting a bit fat, pro- slightly problematic Leonardo DiCaprio, and um, <laughs> and and the idea of um, I, I still haven't seen Titanic. I'm, I'm, I'll put my hand up, but uh, the, <laughs> the idea of Titanic, <laughs> the scenes in Titanic, sort of having having this taboo um, space in their life, 
Yeah. Did um, did you, was that something that was a complete fiction for you, or were you were you sort of like, oh yeah, Leo wasn't too bad. He, you know, twenty plus years ago. Oh, oh, he wasn't. Oh, um, so growing up, a lot of my first like thoughts about about intimacy and stuff were were through films that I watched, mm. like just the scenes where you're told you you get told to like close your eyes and stuff. Yep. <laughs> and um, but storytelling in general, the reason that I I love it so much is because my sister has always wanted to be a director ever mm. since she was like very very young. And so every weekend, my dad and my sister and I would go to Video Easy and rent movies mm. and watch. So yeah, Titanic in particular, I remember being really, um, being really into Leonardo DiCaprio. But uh, actually, more so River Phoenix. He was my favorite. But I don't think Sunny would have. I think Sunny is more mainstream. Yeah. Um, River Phoenix was was my guilty. Was was my property. Mine alone. <laughs> And he he gets to remain forever beautiful, whereas as I said, you know, Leo's kind of got mm-hmm. all got a exactly. little bit problematic. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> all right, I want to. I'm going to come full circle here and back to mm-hmm. memory because um, as Sunny and Vince, they try to make sense of their own lives. They can't they can't escape the memory and the legacy of their parents' journeys, both mm. literal and metaphorical. Did you see, or do you now, uh, you know, that it's been released, do you see the Coconut Children existing in sort of a, a broader literary tradition around, um, I guess, diaspora, but also sort of coming to terms with these stories of migration? Um, it was always my intention to uh, write from that tradition, write from, write from and for um, the experience of, of, of refugees' families as I saw it. But I do really hope that it becomes that the things that are universal in it can other people might be drawn to. Like I do really, like what everything that you brought up about um, the way that, that boys understand masculinity and the way that affects um, how they perform in their daily life, that wasn't even something I consciously thought about, I don't think. And so I feel like, with every um, every text, just relies on the people that that are that are reading it and the experiences that they bring and the interpretations that they have. So I don't know if I have any place to to um, to hope for it to have a wider uh, literary si- significance, if you can even say that. <laughs> but I hope so. Like I really hope that it doesn't just um, it isn't just labeled as. Um, a story for specifically for Vietnamese people or specifically for young people because I feel like those labels can really erode um, the way that we understand the text yeah understand a story genre and category can be so limiting I guess I guess when I asked that question I was actually thinking more that the idea (laughs) of the idea of it being a literary tradition that we need to understand as universal I think particularly in Australia Mm -hmm. like we have we have this sense of um i think and i may be thinking about uh from a canonical you know uh pale male and stale sort of idea of writing mm. uh that that there is a, a certain way of writing and reading that is fixed and everything else exists outside of it but i think there is a universality in these stories and stories of diaspora and stories of migration that mm. that has something to say that is universal mm. i think so too i mean i feel i, I would hope that I, I do think that um, with refugee families, the the relationship that you that a child has with their parents 
um, and the misunderstandings, like the conundrums, and also just the the whole trial of figuring out who your parents were before they had you. I feel like that question is universal, and it's only really um, exacerbated when you're in a refugee family because those situations that happened before you have such a have such a huge role in determining how you see yourself and how you see your connection to your history and your culture. But yeah, yeah, that whole idea of who your parents were before they had you is an is an essential question, I think. Mm. <laughs> and if you'd like to engage more in, in those essential questions uh, that Vivian is discussing, I am I am talking to Vivian Pham. We are discussing her her new novel, her debut novel, The Coconut Children. It is absolutely terrific and I like wherever you are there are so many bookstores that are will deliver to your door so get yourself a copy of the coconut children Vivian thank you so much for, for taking the time for final draft thank you so much thank you so much that's it for this great conversation with Vivian Pham Vivian's latest novel is the coconut children and it's out now through vintage Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Aura Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. It's also being recorded in social isolation uh, at my house, which is also on Gadigal land. I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners. Um, now, if, uh, if you're enjoying the show, uh, if you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, then you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel, which is me. Uh, and look, I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. So till then, happy reading. <laughs>